1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You've heard me say this last week as we introduced the book. We're going to talk a lot through this book about Paul encouraging the Thessalonian believers. There is a strong theme of encouragement here, primarily for encouraging them in, in where they stand in God, where they stand in union with Christ by virtue of God's grace. Paul is thankful for where they are, and he wants to encourage them about the work God has already done to establish this church. But he's also encouraging them to press forward, to not be content, to grow in their relationship with Christ. And so we'll see both of those themes coming through again and again in 1 Thessalonians. For encouragement to be real, for it to, to matter and to make a difference, it must be based on truth. It can't simply be empty flattery just sort of spoken in the moment, but it's got to be encouragement that actually matters, that comes from some substance. If you are in the midst of a painful trial and I just say to you, well, things will get better, be happy. Well, that might not seem tremendously encouraging. It may seem like it lacked a little bit of substance. It's kind of what James talks about in James chapter 2 when he talks about the person who is lacking clothing and lacking daily food and, and the response to that person is go in peace, be warmed and filled. Well, that means nothing, that, that ultimately it does not provide the, the, the substance or the encouragement. And 1 Thessalonians is a letter from the Apostle Paul that is filled with sweet, genuine, truth-based encouragement for a group of young believers. Paul is seeking to minister from out of the truth of what they've, they've begun to come to understand, the doctrines that they've been taught already, and he's going to continue to teach them and, and continue to thank God for them. The book starts with him, as we saw last week, thanking God. He is watching for evidences of grace in their lives, both when he was with them and when he's apart from them, and he sends Timothy to go and check on them. And, and, and as we'll see in this portion of the letter, he's also hearing from others about the Thessalonians, and he's seeing evidences of grace in their lives, God's work in their lives. And he sees that, and he thanks God for it, and then he lets them know that he thanked God for it. He, he gives this full sort of cycle of encouragement by watching for what God's doing, thanking God, and then telling them that he is. And so we looked last week, and I'm just going to reread verses 2 and 3 of 1 Thessalonians 1 where he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is Paul giving thanks, as we looked at last week. And as I said to you then, verses 4 through 10, we, we paused between verses 3 and 4, but really 4 through 10, that whole section goes together. Because what he says, what he goes on to say in those verses is really the substance behind those statements of thanksgiving. Here's the, the foundation or the reality that exists of why I am giving thanks for you, why I am giving thanks to God for his work. They further explain his thanksgiving. And so verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The ESV supplies the word for to start there, but the, the connection is clear. Paul, when he wrote this, was just writing one long sentence that says, we are thanking God for your faith and your love and your hope, knowing, brothers, that he loves you and has chosen you. It's all one thought there in Paul's mind that there has this knowledge of God loving them and having 
chosen them, and therefore his, his thankfulness is based on what he knows. Biblical encouragement is based on biblical truth. It's based on what we know about who God is, and so we seek to encourage one another based on the truth that we have in Scripture. And Paul could encourage these young believers based on a doctrine that he references here in verse 4 and is found throughout Scripture. It's not often an easy doctrine for people to embrace when they are new as believers sometimes. This is one that they might struggle with, and yet, apart from the doctrine that he mentions here, they're There is no substance behind his encouragement. It is this very truth that he points out that becomes a large part of the basis of how he's encouraging them. Knowing brothers or having known brothers loved by God, his choice of you. Paul's praise to God for the Thessalonians rests in significant part here on what we would call the doctrine of election. One theological dictionary defines this doctrine this way, a biblical word used to speak of God's choosing of individuals or people to bring about God's purposes. Much modern evangelism, when it speaks to the the call to conversion, if you will, speaks in terms of of choosing, of of urging people to choose Christ, of choosing to, to trust in Christ. Biblical language seems to focus more on people believing in Christ, people trusting in, placing their faith in Christ, being saved by faith in Christ. When the New Testament uses the language of choosing with reference to salvation, it is God choosing a people for himself as opposed to people choosing God. We see that in a number of places. Jesus in Matthew twenty-two fourteen 14 speaks of many are called but few are chosen. The the proclamation of God's call goes out to many, but few are chosen. Romans 11.5, speaking of believers, describes them as a remnant chosen by grace. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28, a portion of scripture that is speaking to the Corinthian culture and their love for human wisdom and intellect speaks about the fact that God chose the the, the foolish things of the world. God chose the lowly things, the debased things, the weak things, the despised things for the very purpose that no one would be able to boast in the presence of God, that no one would be able to say, I figured it all out and that's how I got here. It was based on my great knowledge that I, I got myself into your presence. And ultimately, it is God who initiates. Ephesians 1 speaks it well in verses 3 through 5, where it talks of God blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Speaking of a a choosing that has gone on in eternity past, before man even comes into existence, God is in the the process of a plan of redemption that already involves choosing people to be his very own, and he goes on to say those that he predestined for adoption. Here in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, this mention of God choosing these believers is intended to be not just an isolated doctrine, not just sort of a theological sidetrack, it is purposefully there as the basis for his thanksgiving. I am thanking God for your faith, love, and hope, knowing full well that you are loved by God and have been chosen by God. He is grateful for the qualities he sees to God. So he's, he's commending the Thessalonians that they do show faith, hope, and love, but he's not thanking them for those things because the source of those things comes ultimately from God. 
when we demonstrate faith, hope, and love, it is God's goodness and his grace at work in us. And that praise just continues and expands in verse 4, where his point is the very fact that you belong to him, not just your faith, hope, and love, but your, your very belonging to this body of believers is due to God's gracious, loving choice of you. He is the one that in eternity past chose you and now has, has worked in you and brought you into faith in Jesus Christ. It was not that they first chose Jesus or the gospel, but rather that God initiated that relationship. Paul says that with certainty. That's the, 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 you see it there in verse 4 when he starts knowing brothers loved by God. This I am certain of, he's, he's speaking to there. Paul knows that they are loved, knows that they are chosen, and that God has done this out of love for his people. John Stott says, God chose us because he loves us, and he loves us because he loves us. He does not love us because we are lovable, but only because he is love, and with that mystery, we must rest content. It is a difficult area for us to wrestle with, this doctrine of election, but if we try to try to make it more palatable to, to sort of fit our logic and argue that man must first choose God. We are defying verses like this, and we are suggesting something that is spiritually impossible. Uh, scripture is very clear about the state of those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, that they are lost in sin, that they are blind in sin. Ephesians 2.1 describes those apart from Christ as being dead in sin. It couldn't give a more clear visual of the condition of the unbelieving heart in terms of its own ability to act. It is dead in sin. In fact, Romans goes on and describes our posture, our nature as that of an enemy with God in Romans 5.10. It says we were enemies of his before we were reconciled to God. In that state, we could not simply choose to do the right thing and embrace the gospel. God had to work. God had to act first. And he did so, as it says here, as Paul says, out of love, choosing you to believe in him. Apart from that sovereign work of God, you and I would remain in blissful ignorance, in rebellion to God, rejecting Jesus Christ, and walking willingly toward our own eternal destruction, apart from God's work. The doctrine of election is not always the, the easiest of, of biblical teachings. It raises questions and objections, and I won't pretend to, to answer all those today because this passage doesn't answer them all. I think they're dealt with throughout the scriptures, but I, I want to go through this passage because I think it does speak to this doctrine. The rest of this passage describes some of the outcome of God's loving election of his people. Verse Four again, it says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Note the word because. We are certain. We, we are knowing that you are loved by God and his choice of you because, and what follows is how we know God's loving selection of you, how we know that God is in all of this. And so this is, again, meant to encourage the Thessalonian believers. This is not meant to be a seminary class to them that, that sort of point by point defines the doctrine of election. This is meant 
to build on his encouragement of them by explaining the certainty of his knowledge of God's work in them. We are thankful to God for your faith, love, and hope, knowing of God's love for you and his, his choice of you because, and what he does then is go through, I, I'm going to point out what I think are, are three key points here, three sort of steps, if you will, that all relate to the gospel because of three things related to the gospel. And they are the, the preaching of the gospel, the receiving of the gospel, and the living out of the gospel. We have this certainty that this is God who has initiated work in you because of what we know about the preaching of the gospel to you, your receiving of the gospel, and now your living out of the gospel. Put in uh, word it differently for you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this passage is meant to encourage you with truth about how the gospel came to you, how the gospel changed you, and how it is bearing fruit in and through you. And all of it directs back to this starting point, which is the love of God and his choice of you in verse five, uh, verse four into verse five. Let me pick up again in verse five where he starts with, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. From the vantage point of the Thessalonians, some Jews who went to the synagogue and who said that they worshipped the, the, the God of Israel, a lot of Gentiles who were pagans and, and idol worshipers, this all started with someone coming to them and preaching the gospel, in this case, Paul and Silas. This all began with the first exposure, if you will, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same for all Christians. We, we didn't experience coming to Christ via God's election of us. We experienced it by virtue of either seeing, reading, or hearing the gospel. We were brought into it by somebody being kind enough to tell us about Jesus Christ or by opening up the word and reading about the gospel. Uh, no one can be made right apart from the gospel. And, and he's clear about that here because he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. And he goes on. He's not diminishing or minimizing the word. Because he's saying, this is, this is how the gospel came to you. It was spoken to you. You did get it in word. You did get all of the fundamental truths of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent from heaven. That he came and that he lived a perfect life. And that he then sacrificed, suffered his life on the cross as a substitute in our place. As a punishment that, that we deserve for our sins, he took in himself. And he died on that cross taking the place of sinners like us. And then he rose again, declaring victory over death, but also showing his defeat of sin. His resurrection shows that, that he had paid the sufficient price for sin, and he now offers life to you through faith in him. And the gospel then culminates in a call to repent and to believe, to turn, to, to stop self-reliance and self-focus and, and, and setting up whatever your own gods are or making yourself God and turn from that and embrace Jesus Christ. Turn from your rebellion to your creator and stake all of your faith and hope on Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. So that is the word, the, the truth of the gospel. 
And Paul's not minimizing when he says in verse 5, came to you not only in word, but he's saying it came with more. And this is where Paul now is going to give his eyewitness experience and tie this back to what he said earlier. I am certain of what God's doing in you. From one hand, as firsthand experience of seeing the gospel preached to you and knowing what was preached to you. It came with power and conviction in the Holy Spirit. He's not at this point really talking about the Thessalonians per se. They are a passive audience in this. What Paul is talking about right now is the, the truth of the message and the integrity of the messengers and the Holy Spirit's work through both. And, and, and they are recipients of that. So what he's emphasizing in verse 5 is from firsthand experience, he knows that what they heard was the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that it was preached to them clearly, that the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God was heard, and that the Spirit of God was at work in that. When he speaks of power there, it's probably a reference to what we've seen in the Gospel of John before and what we often see in Acts, and that is accompanying the preaching of the Gospel God was supernaturally doing miracles and giving signs to authenticate this message. Remember, again, this is a, a, a group of people in a place on the other side of the Aegean Sea who have never met Paul and Silas before. Most of them maybe have heard something about Jesus Christ, but probably have never met Jesus Christ. And here comes this itinerant preacher, tent maker, to come and proclaim truth to them. And God, in his grace and through his spirit, enables power to come with that message, be it in some form of signs, something that authenticates that says, this is from God. This is not just a couple of guys talking to you about some other guy that they, they heard of back in Israel. This is a message from God, and it is authenticated with power. And the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to people so that as they're listening to it, it's not only being validated by the power that they see of the Holy Spirit, but it's being it, it's being validated by the inner conviction that's coming with that message. There's something that's, that's burning inside. There's something that's hitting them inside that's telling them that this is truth. And that's why he says at the end of, of verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. His reference, that's kind of like it's in parentheses there. He, he's saying, you know the, the power and the conviction and the work of the Holy Spirit was ministered through us as servants. And we firsthand experienced that. We, we know what that is like because we saw what God did in that proclamation. The Holy Spirit verified the message. The message pierced their hearts. And all of that, he says, for the sake of the Thessalonians. This is a, an, an encouraging statement because you have Paul and Silas preaching to Jews in the synagogue on three Sabbaths. You have them preaching to Gentiles as they're able to. And, and what we keep seeing is that some embrace and some do not. Some, they all hear the same message, the same reasoning, the same truth about Jesus Christ, and some are changed by it, and others are not. And, and 1 Thessalonians 1.5 is, is an affirmation from Paul. His first affirmation concerning his certainty about God's choosing is the fact that God saved you I, I know it started with the communication of the gospel and with a powerful work of his spirit in the communication of that gospel. This wasn't just a couple of guys talking. 
God was doing something in this. As, your, as the gospel was being preached, God was accomplishing something in the lives of people. That's the first evidence that he has, that there is something going on here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not mere words. It's not the, the, the cheerful pep talk of a life coach. It's not some motivational speech designed to help you achieve all of your dreams. The gospel is a message that is filled with power from God that is designed to convict the person of sin. It is designed to expose the fact that we are separated from a holy God and are sinners and need to be made right with him and can only be made right through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I am confident First of all, when that message was preached to you, that truth was preached, and it was God's Spirit who was at work and who was bringing about that conviction and, and, and causing you to, to see Jesus Christ in that gospel. That w- that's what was preached. The conviction and the power were not their own. It was not all on Paul and Silas to have the most compelling presentation and the, the smartest logic. Paul will tell us elsewhere that he did not come with fancy language. It was not his rhetoric that won the day. It was ultimately a display of the power of God, and that's what he's relying on here. And he's saying, Thessalonians, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that when we came, what you experienced was the Spirit of God powerfully working in your hearts to communicate the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. So that's the first part. Second part, there's two, two more, and they all fall in verses 6 through 10. Let me just read this whole section, and then we'll, we'll hit two more areas where he is showing how, uh, how his, his knowledge of them is confirmed. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First and foremost, they heard an accurate and spirit-empowered message of the gospel. That was what was communicated to them. That was first. Many people hear the gospel. That in and of itself does not save simply hearing the gospel. We read last week in Acts chapter 17 how Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, how he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And then it says there in Acts 17 that after him being abundantly clear about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus did, it says some believed, some heard that, and they they embraced that gospel and joined Paul and Silas. And the reality is that some responded by forming a mob and, and becoming angry at Paul and Silas and deciding that they needed to expel them violently, if need be, from their city. Same message, same messengers, truth of the gospel, powerfully preached. Some believe and others respond with hate. They, they despise what they are hearing. They do not believe it. They reject it. And in fact, they are beginning to form this conspiracy of how do we get rid of these guys? They heard the gospel, but they did not receive it. What he is talking about here, though, as he's writing to the Thessalonians is, not only did the gospel come to you powerfully, but I see the evidence that you received it. When verse 6 says that word for received, 
You became imitators of us, for you received the word in much affliction. The word for received pictures embracing something. It's taking it and taking it to myself and holding it closely. It's not the, the picture of um, when, when you and I were back in those days when we were on the playground and there were two captains and they picked teams and, and it came down to the last person and, and one of the captains finally had to say, and, and I take Doug. <laughs> that's not much of a reception. That's just sort of a, okay, if you're what's left, then you can play on my team. This is the opposite of that. This is not that. This is, we see this and this is, so, this is like the captain saying, I want, I want that guy first. I want the tall, strong guy. I want that one. That's the one. Well, he's saying your reception of the gospel was you received it. You embraced it. You heard it as truth. You felt its conviction. The Holy Spirit was at work in you in such a way that even though there were people standing there saying, this is all nonsense, you and your heart were being pierced and saying, I want this. I see Christ now for who he is. And they, they believed, they received it. Paul gives in this passage four, we'll just go through these quickly, four marks of how he can say this reception of the gospel is so clear to him. Affliction, joy, repentance, and anticipation. First thing is here, he says, our gospel, um, verse six, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. You received it, you embraced it, even though it was going to cost you. Understand again from what we looked at last week, the scenario here is not, oh, you poor persecuted people who are dealing with such hardship, come to Jesus and everything will be great. Life will be good. You'll be prosperous and, and all will go well for you if you just come, come out of your affliction and come to Jesus and all will be well. The reality is, they know that they are being called to follow a savior and it will cost them because they are seeing that, that what's already happened is here the preachers have come and the preachers are being chased out of town violently or are being threatened by these people. And so when he says that you received it in much affliction, he's talking about the fact that, that you knew coming to Christ would cause you persecution, would cause you suffering. And in much affliction, you received it. You still embraced it. The truth for the Thessalonians was that following Christ in a hostile pagan culture was going to cost them. We live in, and in, in, in perhaps it's only in Western culture that the, the false prosperity gospel could ever find a footing. The notion that if you just trust in Jesus, you'll have the best job, you'll have the best income, the best car, the best house, and if you don't have any of that, somehow it's a lack of faith on your part because that's what coming to Christ means. It means just hitting the lottery and then some. Only in this culture could that come because the Thessalonians never would have understood what, what that message is being preached. They understood that coming to Christ meant count the cost when you come to him because following him may cost you your family and it may cost you your job and it could even cost you your life. There was a cost to their faith, and yet Paul says, in spite of that, here's, here again, remember again, what he's saying is, I know that God did this, that God chose you. And he's saying it here because he says, I know God chose you because you came to the gospel in much affliction. In spite of what you saw and knew what would happen, you still trusted in Christ. That's got to be evidence of God's work. So the fact that they received the gospel is in, in, in affliction is first, and then he says, you received it, in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's joy as number two. 
in much affliction with joy from the Holy Spirit. Those two don't often go together except in Christianity. Just note, as a side note, second time he's referenced to the Holy Spirit. This is a great passage for dealing with the Trinity. He's already shown us God the Father in this passage and how he is thanking our God and Father, how he is thanking God, our God and Father for their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is named Father and Son, and now twice he has talked about the Holy Spirit as being the one to apply these things, to bring conviction and power to them and apply these things to them. He now says it's joy, you have this, this remarkable joy that the Holy Spirit gives. Joy doesn't erase afflictions. Joy doesn't make us forget our suffering. The experience is still there. But rather, the, the Holy Spirit does what is a paradox for our culture, and that is to live in suffering with joy side by side. To be able to experience both is what he's describing here with the Thessalonians. To be in much affliction and yet to still have something going on inside that still gives peace and joy, that still says there is a hope beyond this life, there is more to it than this, and I can rest in Christ. And so they are rooted in this joy. It's the Holy Spirit doing this. He says, this is how I, I'm, I'm certain of God's choosing of you because not only did you run towards something that was going to draw you into affliction, but you did it joyfully. You found the Spirit's joy in the process. God applied it to your heart so that you were able to, in the midst of that, see God's glorious work even as you're suffering. Third thing is repentance. And that one's down in verse 9 when he's talking about the testimony of others in the region. They report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The lives of these Thessalonian believers had been dramatically changed they had gone from being idol-worshiping pagans, in some cases Jews who were still awaiting a Messiah, but their, their lives had, had been turned. They turned from self and from man-centeredness and from the creation, the attempted creation of their own gods through idols, and they turned to trying to create God in their own image to believe in the one true living God. Paul says that, that repentance, that is the essence of repentance right there. He says, that's, that's a work of God in you. Repentance is that turning. It is that changing. And when he talks here about idolatry, it's, it's not just, we think of them as carved images and things in stone and things in wood, but, but the fact is that's one form of idolatry. At its core, idolatry is worshiping something or someone other than the one true and living God. It is it is making something paramount in my life over virtually everything else. I want this. I want this circumstance. I want this person. Whether it was the idols of pagan religions in the Roman Empire or it is today's idols of success or wealth or pleasure or ease or whatever you might come up with, idolatry still comes down to me saying, I want this. And I'm not going to be happy unless I get it and I am committed to getting it, and I am determined to getting it, holding on to it. The, the, the clue that tells you that you're struggling with an idol is what you do when someone or something stops you from getting it. When, some, when something gets in the way of your design of what you planned, and you get angry about that, that's a pretty good sign that you're struggling with an idol at that point. So if you are a person who, who craves control, my calendar is set, 
and everything is, is right in place, and I, I know what I'm going to do, and it, it's all measured out, and, and then somebody messes your day up, the child does something that throws you off, or worse yet, you're driving somewhere and you are right on schedule and somebody has the nerve to wreck their car on the road in front of you. Oh, man. I know my reaction at that moment. Not always God-pleasing. How could you do this to me? Don't you know I have somewhere to go? That is just wrestling with idolatry at that point. I, I, I want control or I want pleasure or I want fill in the blank. And what he is describing here is how the Thessalonians so genuinely received the gospel. It was such a clear work of God that they were being transformed in the midst of an idol-worshiping culture. They were rejecting them. They were turning from them and saying, I don't want that anymore. I don't want that life anymore. I want this life following after the one true and living God. And in fact, he says, they turned, verse 9, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That word for serve in the Greek is the verb form of the same common word in the Greek for slave. You humbly surrendered yourself to the service of the true and living God. You said, I don't want the rest of this. I want to glorify and serve him. I want to be in subjection to him. When you have an idol, whatever it is, you are the master of that. You are ultimately using that idol or trying to, to, to work that idol for your own purposes and pleasure. When you receive the gospel, the evidence is delight in submission to God. It is, I, I long to be in, where God wants me to be doing what God wants me to be doing and being in submission to him. So there's repentance. And then the last one is anticipation, which is in verse 10. And to wait, we not only heard about you turning, but we heard about you waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. A clear sign of a transformed heart is changed priorities in life. It is the, the emphasis on, on not just focused on the here and now, but living for what God has ahead in eternity. We live in the present, don't get me wrong. We still have jobs to do, we have kids to raise, we have bills to pay, we have things that must be done in the present. But the focus in those things should be on looking forward to our coming Savior, should look forward to being in his presence and look forward to hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. This is why the writer of Ecclesiastes, if you remember anything about his struggle, everything for him was about gain and pleasure today. I want it now. I want to experience the ultimate in happiness today. And what the, the writer in Ecclesiastes had to learn is the same thing the Thessalonians found out, is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are living for eternity. This is a blip. And we are seeking to be faithful stewards during the season that we have. But ultimately, we will live in the glorious presence of our God and King. And we will be reunited with our Savior. And that's what they are anticipating, awaiting his Son from heaven. Our ultimate gain will never come in this life. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and in his return. Because in the end, the world, apart from Christ, is destined to experience God's wrath. This will all be done away with and made new by him. And so he calls us to eagerly anticipate, to, to have that shift in focus that looks for the coming of Jesus Christ. True gospel was preached to them. They received it with affliction, joy, repentance, and then anticipation. And the last thing that you see in this passage is they were living it out. The last thing is Paul says, I am certain of God's loving 
choosing of you, not only because the gospel came to you in such power, not only because you received it in affliction and joy and repentance and anticipation, but I also know that God is in this because of the way the gospel is going out from you, because of what I'm hearing from other people about how the gospel is being proclaimed. He says that in verse six, you, you became imitators of us. Uh, verse seven, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in those areas, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul says, you know what? I am watching your lives. Timothy's coming back with reports. I'm hearing from other people. And you became imitators of us. That, that's not an arrogant statement on Paul's part there. That, that is simply Paul laying out the reality of, of them following Paul and Silas as they followed Christ. Gordon Fee writes this. He says, Paul's calling on his converts to imitate him as he imitated Christ is the key to the ethical instructions given in his churches where they have no book to follow. There was no complete New Testament by which they could turn to and, and understand the, the living out of the Christian life in full detail. What those early churches depended on was these apostles who would come and who would live amongst them and who would speak the word amongst them and who would demonstrate to them what following after Jesus Christ was. And therefore, the, the obligation on those apostles really is no different for you and I. And that is to live in such a way that a young believer can look at our life and say, ah, I see, I see now. I, I, I know what it's teaching me here. I see this truth in scripture. And now I got some flesh and bones because I'm seeing how you live out Christ, how you live out the gospel, how you make decisions differently, how you respond to adversity differently. Do people see that in your life? Do they see Christ being formed in you? Um, that's what Paul is writing about here when he says you became imitators. Christianity is not just some confessional statement. It is a way of life. And one of the most tangible pieces of evidence that a life is being transformed is that even in a hostile culture, other people are seeing something different and they're seeing Christ. And he says here, this is, not, this is, this is happening in a way that other areas are, are, are now seeing. We don't have to tell others about the Thessalonians or their faith because we're hearing about it from everywhere, that people are remarking about your faith and seeing it lived out. Just off to the side for just a second, sometimes when we get on this doctrine of election, one of the objections is, well, if, if everything is elect and chosen by God, then what's the, what's the motivation for evangelism at that point? The motivation is, is right here. It is such a passionate love for God because of what he has done and how he has rescued us that that is then lived out in my life. Here he is talking about how the, the Thessalonians already are having an evangelistic bent around them, people who are chosen, people who are demonstrating the goodness of God. The truth that the Thessalonians had received was pouring out of their lives. The beauty of what we talked about last week, remember Thessalonica? It's on the waterfront, on the Aegean Sea, it's on a major trade route. Here in God's providence, he plants a church in a place that is a hub of commercial traffic. It is a, it's a merchant city where people are passing through and God puts the gospel there. God sovereignly uses that Macedonian vision, the vision of the Macedonian man, to call Paul over to this place that was not on his itinerary at that point, calls him there, plants a church there, and now people are passing through there, and they're beginning to spread from there saying, this, this is crazy what's happening here. We're seeing something happen in the lives of these people. They're being changed. They're turning to God. 
It is a marvelous witness to unbelievers. And in fact, he says in verse seven, you became an example to all the believers in the region. Other churches are looking at what's happening in Thessalonica and they are seeing the joy of the Thessalonians in suffering. And they are growing as a result of that. They are being blessed by that. Paul began this letter with encouragement. I, I am thankful for you. I see love and faith and hope being nurtured in you and growing in you, and I see this transformation in you, and I want you to know that I am praising God for it. Now I'm hearing from others. I'm hearing from people who are encountering you, that God is changing your lives, and, and, and they're talking about it. That is, that is glory to God for what he has done. All of that, he says, ultimately is tangible evidence of God's loving choice of the Thessalonians. How do I know that God did that? How can I be certain of that? Because I see. The truth of the gospel was preached. You've received it in affliction, joy, repentance, and anticipation, and now you are proclaiming it. All of that goes back to the because that starts in verse 5. Because we've seen these things. All of it testifies to the gracious, sovereign work of God. That's why Paul is reveling in the doctrine of election at the beginning of this. Because it's foundational to everything he's now seeing that is contrary to human nature, that is contrary to the Roman culture of that day, that is contrary to the lifestyles of people in that culture. It's all different. It's all being changed in the church at Thessalonica. And he's saying this is a work of God. And we give credit where credit is due. We praise him and we glorify him. None of those things would be, a pos would be possible apart from God graciously choosing people from out of death and sinful lostness and darkness and filling them with his spirit. And that's what you and I have in Christ, is that hope and that assurance to live out that faith and to labor in love because of what God has done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a plan of redemption that goes back to before this universe was even created. That in eternity past, it was your plan to create and to save a people for your own who would worship and serve you. Lord, we thank you that in that glorious plan, it saw forward to 2018 and to, to people even here who would come to know of Jesus Christ come to believe in him, come to see him as Savior. We thank you for your glorious work, choosing a people to be your own. Lord Jesus, thank you for, for carrying out this, this plan of redemption by giving yourself in sacrifice on the cross and enduring the wrath of your Father for sin that you did not commit but that we did and for being a substitute in our place. Father, we pray that this week we would be reminded again to revel in your goodness to us, to thank you again for how you brought the gospel to us. Everyone here could give a different testimony of how that, how that message was communicated to them in some way. Thank you for that. Thank you for opening our eyes and changing our hearts so that we could receive that gospel. Help us to live with joy and affliction. Help us to be a people who turn from wickedness and embrace you. Help us to be a people who live in great anticipation that our Savior is coming again. We long to be in his presence. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.